This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm not going to settle in and spend time with you. It's just a courtesy visit. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host who's convinced that if he just walks around his house in the other direction, he'll reach the West Indies. Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. It is the week of Columbus Day when we celebrate the fact that when the Europeans showed up, the people living here made the mistake of leaving the door unlocked. If only they had simply safe home security, none of this would have happened. As we reflect on whether or not just to give it all back to the original inhabitants and see if they can do any better, we thought we'd demonstrate one of the few upsides of American civilization. Wait, wait's not my job segment. I was really hoping we'd feature more limericks. Sorry, Bill. Now on this show, we like to inform and entertain and when necessary, defend the honor of bats. The pandemic has been blamed on bats, so we decided to get someone on to speak in their defense, biologist Dan Riskin. The first thing we need to know, why is he spending so much time with bats anyway? Well, I really like them. I I did uh, my PhD on vampire bats, and I've studied (gasps) bats all over the world, and I'm kind of famous for being the guy that put vampire bats on a treadmill. So if if that doesn't get me free cred, I don't know what to do. I I have so many questions, but why did you put vampire bats on a treadmill? Well, so most bats are really bad on the ground. If you take a normal bat and you put it on the ground, it just flaps its wings and gets back in the air. But vampire bats land on the ground. They sneak up on a sleeping cow. They drink its blood and then they take off and fly away. And so they walk really, really well. And so I was curious to know whether these bats, which have secondarily evolved the ability to walk well, walk the way other animals do. And so I put them on a treadmill like you do for a biomechanics study. And I recorded them with a high-speed camera while they walked at different speeds. But when I sped the treadmill up, they switched to this running gait and nobody knew they had that. And so this was my great big discovery is that vampire bats could run. Were the bats grateful for the workout or did they try to attack you and, <laughs> and drink your blood? We had we had one escape in the room. And I, I'll tell you, I have this new respect for vampire bats based on that. They're so smart. Like I, if you've got a dog cornered in a room, you know how it would you know react and look at you and how it would try to get around you. Vampire bats look into your eye. They see through your soul and they are way smarter than dogs. And so they, you know, they're doing calculations. They're taking off. They're zipping around the room. It's very yeah, hard to you, catch you a You only made bat. them faster, Dan, by giving them so much exercise. <laughs> I've unleashed an evil I wasn't ready for. I, I want to go back to bat basics because I like bats a lot. Uh, but primarily, I don't know a lot about them. I think they're just adorable. And I also know they come from itsy bitsy to very, very big. Well, you're right. Bats are really diverse. I think that's really what makes me interested in them now is that there are more than 1400 different species. And the smallest one weighs less than a penny. The biggest one has a six foot wingspan and there's a whole range of bats in between. But the thing that got me started was I was in high school and I picked up a book on bats and it talked about their genitals. And when I was in high school, I figured out that I could get away with reading about obscure animal genitals and mating habits and how big their parts were. And I thought it was hilarious because I had a high school sense of humor. And it turns out that 
that a lot of scientists have the same sense of humor that I you did were, when I was in high you school. Were, you were pretty popular in high school then, Dan, <laughs> were you? Not, not popular. Friends. I was desperate in high school too, but I wasn't that desperate. <laughs> Wait, you, you're not asking the important question. Is there something unusual about bat genitals? Well, I don't know. I can't speak for everyone on the panel, but it's different from me for sure. So these bats, um, <laughs> some of them, some of the males. Mine don't have fangs either. <laughs> Good thing this is radio. <laughs> Some of these bats, they can weigh like a, a huge percentage of their body weight. It's really impressive. Ah! And it's, it's funny in high school and it's still funny now. Jeez. <laughs> oh, okay, hold on. Hold on. No, we have to get back to the news because one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show was just to ask, are bats in fact the cause for this global pandemic? They've been blamed for it. Is, is that unfair? Well, it, it's a great question. And so the virus seems to have come from a wild animal, and it's looking very likely that that wild animal was a bat. But it's not the bat's fault. And it's just bad luck that we have a receptor on our cells that's very similar to the receptor that's on these bat cells. And if the bats were alone in the woods, in their pristine ecosystems and they weren't coming into contact with people, there would have been no problem. And so this is a, it's a time when we have to really embrace bat conservation and the conservation of wild animals and keep wild places wild so that we're not coming into contact with wild viruses. Or we could just have the bats wear masks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, tri it's tricky because they echolocate. So that would really mess up with their, their call structure. That's true. Do bats not, like even vampire bats don't attack humans? I wish I could say that, but technically, well, they do no, sometimes. that's the thing. That's oh the scariest thing. He's talking, he's talking about how cute it is and he, all these great attributes. All I can think of is the one sneaking up on the yeah. cow and <laughs> sucking its blood. Of course, they're horrifying. I don't, Roxanne fast. loves these bats. No, these are horrible <laughs> creatures. Also, he told us he taught them to run. My God, we are in deep trouble. Has a bat ever bitten you? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, I catch the bats and I'm working with the bats and they don't like being caught by a giant human. And so they, they bite in self-defense. If you have been bitten by a vampire bat, are you yourself now a bat? Are you going to turn into a bat now? <laughs> I wish. He's a no. bat. Dan's a bat. <laughs> this guy shows up on our show talking all nice about, but he's a bat. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm playing for the other team, clearly. No, the... no wonder you're such an enthusiast. That's why we well... should lend bats money. <laughs> So you're an expert on bats, I know, but I understand you're also an expert on parasites. Yeah, I, I had my PhD on vampire bats, which technically are parasites because they feed on blood. Can you tell us about a particularly gross parasite you've had some experience with? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, out of all His the parasites... His name was Brayden, and he was my ex, and... <laughs> wasn't talking to you, Joel. <laughs> Fortunately, I've not had any interactions with Brayden, but I have had... <laughs> A bot fly. So I was in Belize and I got a mosquito bite. And unbeknownst to me, when the mosquito bit me, it dropped off this egg, which then molted into a larva. And then the larva went down into the hole that the mosquito had made. And then it started growing. And so I got back to Canada where I lived and uh, I got this mosquito bite on top of my head and it starts growing. And uh, anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know what Braden's like, but I felt like that was pretty good. <laughs> is it, is I have a last question, Dan. Oh. Roxanne, can I ask, is the question, how are we ever going to sleep again? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan Riskin, we've invited you here to play a game we're calling All the Flavor of Guano with None of the Calories. You're an expert on bats, but if you spell bat backwards, you get tab, a vaguely disgusting soda we were shocked to learn is still being made. Oh, 
God. We're going to ask you three questions about that Diet Cola. Get two right, and you win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Dan playing for? Sam Trotter of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. All right, here is your first question. When Tab was created, some of the Coca-Cola company were skeptical. Which of these is a real quote from one of Coca-Cola's ad people in the 1960s? Is it A, quote, if God had wanted Coca-Cola to have saccharin in it, he would have made it that way in the first place. B, quote, this is unfit to wash my dog with, and I hate my dog. Or C, this will be popular until the mid-80s tops, but by the time a young Bill Clinton takes office in 1993, it will have been replaced by other beverages. Uh, I'm going to go with B. No, actually, it was A. If God had wanted Coca-Cola to have saccharin in it, he would have made it that way in the first place. I guess this guy was not quite clear on where Coca-Cola actually comes from. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right, that's okay. You still have two more chances. Don't worry about it. Here we go. Next question. In 1992, Coca-Cola debuted Tab Clear, and the company's chief marketing officer said they had a very specific goal for it. What was the mission of Tab Clear? A, to set the stage for their next product, Tab Clearasil. B, to make a drink so unliked and unpopular it would kill off Pepsi's similar product, Pepsi Clear, by association. Or C, to, quote, finally defeat water once and for all. B. That's right. They tried to kill off Pepsi's similar product, Pepsi Clear, just by association, and it worked. Pepsi Clear is no more. Last question. If you get this right, you win. Tab's name came about when they had a computer randomly generate words for them to choose from. There were other contenders. Which of these was almost the name of Tab? Was it A, Abzu, B, Zap, or C, Zuff? Zap. You're right. Zap is correct, but so was Abzu and Zuff. They were all names considered for the product that became Tab. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, how did Dan do? So smart. He's two out of three. means he's a winner. That means you get to go back home before midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Dan Riskin is an evolutionary biologist and bat expert. His book, Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, is available anywhere books are sold. Dan Riskin, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, sometimes our show runs long, and we don't get to share with you everything that happens. So here's a question we haven't broadcast before. It's Peter and panelist Tom Bodet. Tom, smart speaker technology is still popular for some reason, and if you really love it, you can now have it where? Um, you can put it, you can have it in your glasses. Yes, exactly right. You can have your smart speaker on your face. If you wish your smart speaker could come with you wherever you are and scream the weather directly into your ears, then the Amazon Echo Frames are for you, you freak. The glasses have (laughs) tiny speakers near your ears so you can have all the amenities of your Echo at home wherever you are, all while appearing to everyone around you as if you're insane. (laughs) You remember Google Glass? That's when they put, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amazon is rethinking one of the most tech failures of all time by repeating it exactly. If they want to do that right... This is a pair of computer glasses I would buy. Is It's loaded with the latest facial recognition software, and as you're walking up to people, it tells right. you what their name is. That oh, would, God. I would pay $1,000. Any amount that. of money. <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit about him. This is Leo. He's your second-born son. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just a little bit. The frames alert you out of nowhere when you get any app notification at all. 
So that everlasting stream of nonsense is even closer to your brain. You can also listen to music for three hours until the batteries die. But don't worry, the sound quality sucks. <laughs> According to the Washington Post, quote, nobody asked for this. Ooh, I've had reviews like that. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> When we come back, the secret work of art that would solve your problems, if only you could see it, and Padma Lakshmi, the only person in the world who looks fantastic while she is eating. We'll be back in a minute with more Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns and Foster. To Stearns and Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns and Foster mattress is handcrafted every stitch. Every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns and Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsandFoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. I'm Rodney Carmichael. And on this episode of Louder Than a Riot, did bias against rap lyrics seal the fate of No Limits Mac Phipps? This guy shouldn't be incarcerated. And I know that his music got him incarcerated, but they got the wrong guy. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here's your host who's still not entirely convinced the world is round, Peter Sagan. Thank you, Bill. We are sailing across the ocean of news for this year, still hoping against hope that it will be flat and we will mercifully fall off the edge. That's right. Back in March, if you can remember back that far, life seemed pretty good, and we were excited to learn about a secret from the entertainment industry that would make our lives even better. Here's a Bluff the Listener game featuring our version of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, meaning the Paula, the Luke, and the Maz Jobrani. Hi, this is Liz Colandini from Burke, Virginia. Burke, Virginia? I don't know where that is. What part of Virginia? Um, so it's actually like 20 minutes outside of D.C. if there's no traffic. <laughs> oh, I see. But I know some people in Virginia who would say that's not really Virginia. That's northern Virginia. Oh, yeah. Well, we're the cool part of Virginia. You're the cool <laughs> part. Liz, it is great to have you with us. You're going to play the game in which you must try to tell truth from fiction. Bill, what is Liz's topic? When do we want it? Now. What do we want? I don't know. This week we heard about a piece of art or entertainment being held back under lock and key, and the people are demanding access to it. Is it that episode of Hannity where he admits he voted for Hillary? Our panelists are going to tell you. Pick the one who's telling the truth, and you'll win our prize, the wait waiter of your choice in your voicemail. Ready to play? Yep. First up, let's hear from Luke Burbank. For over five centuries, art fans have been wondering, what exactly was the Mona Lisa smiling about in da Vinci's classic painting? Well, we may finally have an answer. She was stoned out of her ever-loving mind. 
At least according to an article published last week in the Oxford Art Journal by Hallie Sadel, a prominent Renaissance scholar. Her evidence for this? An earlier portrait of the Mona Lisa painted the day before the famous one by da Vinci, which is similar in every way, except that in this version, Mona Lisa appears to be holding, as the Italians would say, de ginto de marijuana, a big old fat reefer in her right hand. According to the research paper, Lisa Gerardini, the Italian noblewoman who we think of as the Mona Lisa, suffered from terrible migraines and only found relief through cannabis. Da Vinci, being a noted inventor as well as artist, had designed the first indoor grow operation, complete with skylights and a complex system for irrigating the plants. (laughs) Now, no one has actually seen the painting where Mona Lisa is holding the joint. A sadal, the art expert, found one mention of it in a diary that was kept by one of da Vinci's assistants, which suggests that the canvas was actually turned around so da Vinci could paint on the other side. She believes the leading candidate for this masterpiece in the front, party in the back, is da Vinci's painting of St. John the Baptist because of the microscopic cheese crumbs embedded in the paint, indicating the artist may have had the munchies at the time of painting. (laughs) A long-lost version of the Mona Lisa, which might explain what that smile means. Your next story of in-demand media (laughs) comes from Paula Poundstone. Writer-director Ben Meckler recently attempted to view the digital release of the movie Cats on his home screen. Partway through, he tweeted his cry for help. Quote, I desperately need a tell-all book about the making of Cats. It could really help me get through this, end quote. Fellow writer Jack Waz responded with a tweet that, I, Paula Poundstone, will not be allowed to use the exact term because of broadcast radio restrictions, but I will read part of the controversial term, and you fill in the rest, with what is a golfer aiming his ball towards on a golf course? Here is writer Jack Waz's tweet that started a movement. Quote, A visual effects friend of a friend was hired in November to finish some of the 400 effects in the Cats movie. His entire job was to remove CGI butt that had been inserted a few months before, which means somewhere out there there exists a butt cut of Cats, end quote. Soon, hashtag release the butt cut was trending. Now that it has been unleashed, this public demand for anatomically correct animated movie animals surely won't stop there. Online pleas of hashtag where are Bucks privates will follow the home release of Call of the Wild. And that of the new King Kong will be dogged by hashtag release Kong Schlong. (laughs) The probably mythical but much demanded but cut of cats... (laughs) And finally, let's hear about something that people desperately want to see from Maz Jobrani. Before George Lucas sold his Star Wars franchise to Disney, he had an out-of-the-box idea. What would it be like to do a podcast featuring all of his favorite characters being interviewed by Yoda? And he would call it a Yodcast. Believe it or not, the Yodcast happened. And the tapes are hidden somewhere deep in a bunker in Burbank because Disney does not want them to see the light of day. Why, you ask? Interestingly enough, one other out-of-the-box idea Lucas had was to have his golfing buddy Joe Pesci 
be the voice of Yoda in the Yodcasts. As one could imagine, the 10-episode series quickly went from a podcast for all fans to a podcast for adult fans. The Burbank Gazette was able to obtain some clips of the series where Pesci is heard saying, Hmm, your name, what is? Why am I talking like this? To which the director replies, That's how Yoda talks. He flips his sentences. To which Pesci replies, How about I come over there and flip a couple of sentences up your blip-blip-blip-blip? And it goes downhill from there. When he interviews Luke Skywalker, (laughs) Pesci is heard saying, What's the force mean to you? What kind of stupid question is that? (laughs) Later, he asks Han Solo, When Chewbacca goes, Do you actually understand that crap? (laughs) Although fans are clamoring to have the podcast released, Disney executives deny the tapes even exist. When the Gazette tracked down George Lucas and Joe Pesci on the golf course and asked them, Pesci replied, You better get out of my face before I use the force to smack you over the head with this golf club. All right, then. One of these things, Liz, might actually exist. And if it does, people want to see it. Was it from Luke, a version of the Mona Lisa in which she is holding a spliff of some kind? From Paula Poundstone, the butt cut of cats, which is, I guess, the more anatomically correct version. And from Maz, a Yoda podcast with a very profane Yoda as voiced by Joe Pesci. Which of these really might be out there just tempting the fans? Well... I actually know the answer because I want to see the cat butt. You do want you want to see the cat butts. So <laughs> yes, so you're yes. choosing Paula's story of the special cut of cats before they erased the cat butts. That is correct. Well, to bring you the real answer, we spoke to someone deeply involved in the real story. The decision was made to no longer include the butts in the movie Cats. So a visual effects producer was brought in to erase all the realistic cat butts. That was Jack Waz, the man behind the movement called Release the. B- Congratulations, Liz. You got it right. You knew it all along. I hope you are able to see Idris Elba's fake cat butt before you die. Thank you. Uh, You also earned a point for Paula, and you've won our prize, the voice of your choice on your voicemail. Thank you so much, Liz, for playing with us today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Meow. Meow. Singing about the alley cat blues. When Padma Lakshmi made her Netflix show, Taste the Nation, she thought it would be just a celebration of American regional cuisine. What she didn't know was that by the time it was broadcast, it would be a kind of wild fantasy about a strange world in which we could travel around and talk to people. The first question for Padma Lakshmi is, does she really have a superpower? Being a super taster? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds more impressive than it is. It's like, you know, the human version of when dogs can hear whistles that humans can't. Did you know there was something different about you growing up? Did you know that you were special? I don't know about special, but definitely my family thought I was weird or strange because even when I was a toddler, I really enjoyed very spicy foods and, you know, very spicy for Indian cuisine. And so I would always seek out really spicy pickles and chilies in my grandmother's kitchen and they kept moving those jars higher and higher on the pantry shelves and then I would just climb them like a monkey and basically you know one time I was there and I the glass was oily and it slipped from my hand and it fell and I was just hanging there for a really long time because if I jumped down I would have jumped onto glass and oil and you know my aunt saved me but 
I've always had a very keen uh, sense of taste and smell, which is not always great if you're dating me. But um, (laughs) yes, like my partner takes like four showers a day. We were talking earlier on the show about what we've been eating during the pandemic. How have you been doing? Have you been cooking at home? I assume you're quite a good chef. Yeah, I was cooking at home. In fact, I was cooking five minutes ago. Um, You know, the first thing I did in pandemic was go out and buy like 25 pound bags of rice and lentils. Whereas, you know, um, my daughter was hoarding Cheerios and my partner was hoarding weirdly dried apricots and peanut butter. And we still have like 47 boxes of cereal and I'm, I'm pushing the cereal, I'm pushing an all carb diet because I need space in my pantry. Is it possible that he got like the dried apricots and peanut butter because he thought it might make him smell a little better? One can hope. Yeah. <laughs> I consider myself a decent cook, but I've gotten so bored with my own cooking. I just can't think of anything that interests me to eat anymore. I'm like, can they invent a new animal or something? Just <laughs> I get sick of my own cooking, believe me. You know, the other day I was like, can somebody else cook, please? Your daughter was like, I'm going to make a Cheerios casserole <laughs> that you are going to love. It's topped with dried apricots. <laughs> totally. Like, you must have been at some time in your career in, in a situation where somebody lovely who you love has made you some dish and it's terrible and you're not going to tell them that, what do you say? I don't say anything. Um, you know, I just like I made it my mission to, to not ever lie to my daughter and I just talk around difficult questions. Um, um, I I just don't say anything. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a particular Passover dinner at, you know, some, my daughter's father's relative's house. Um, and I just didn't say anything. I just, you know, I hope she doesn't listen to the show. Oh, if she's an, if she's an older (laughs) Jewish woman, she absolutely does. I'm sorry. (laughs) So I wanted to talk to you about your show, uh, taste the nation, which is awesome. You travel the country and you immerse yourself for the episode in various communities and talk about their food as part of their culture. And it's great. What do you do if you're eating somebody's cooking and you really don't like it? On this show, because I've created the show and I'm choosing where to go, I'm going there for a particular reason. I I have to say, though, in the Native American episode, I was very nervous. I was kind of shaking in my boots about that pack rat. It was my first rodent. Sure. I'd never had anything like it. I've eaten a lot of funky stuff over the years, as you can imagine. Um, I had pack rat glazed with a sumac agave sauce, and it was divine. <laughs> We're going to have it for Thanksgiving if I can catch it. You should have it. You should have your uh, in-laws over and have it for Passover. Exactly. <laughs> you're saying pack rat? Is that what you're saying? Because I don't know what kind of – I just know rat. I don't know – You should describe a pack rat for everybody. A probably. pack rat is a very small desert animal. Mm-hmm. It nests in bushes. It has a tail. It's furry. Um, you need about eight of them to be full if you're just eating the legs. I can tell mm-hmm. you this from personal experience now. And mm. you know when it's done because you boil it until the tail falls off. I don't I don't know anything about your personal life, nor do I want to pry. But the one thing I, I would guess could break up a relationship between a Jew and a non-Jew is Manischewitz wine. <laughs> like, you drink this stuff? I got to tell you, at that first Passover dinner... Yeah. The way the food was, I was begging for a goblet of Manischewitz. <laughs> oh, that's really bad food then. Yeah, when someone says pass the Manischewitz, you're like, you must hate my food. Yeah. <laughs> totally. 
Well, Padma Lakshmi, it is a delight to talk to you, but we have invited you here to play a game we're calling Top Chef Meet Top Ref. So you know and work with the best chefs in the world. What do you know of the top refs? We're going to ask you three questions about sports referees. Answer two correctly, and you'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they might choose for their voicemail. Bill, who is Padma Lakshmi playing for? Christopher Price of San Diego, California. All right. One of the pioneers of refereeing was hockey ref Fred Waghorn, who is responsible for what important innovation in refereeing? Was it A, he introduced the striped uniform because, quote, I find it quite slimming. B, he was the first ref to eject a player by picking him up and carrying him off the rink. Or C, he was the first ref to introduce whistles to the game to replace the traditional referee's cowbell. Hmm. I'm going to say he introduced the whistle. You're exactly right, Padma. That's what he did. Apparently, uh, at that point, referees used cowbells to indicate, like, the start and stop of play. And uh, fans started bringing their own cowbells to confuse them. So he said, aha, nobody else will have a whistle. All right, next question. Joey Crawford is a legendary referee in the NBA, but he was suspended for part of a season because he did what? A, he grabbed the ball from Chris Paul after Paul missed two free throws and said, let me show you how to do it. B, he challenged Tim Duncan, who was sitting on the bench, to a fist fight. Or C, he called a technical foul on Steph Curry just because his drooly mouth guard was really gross. Wow. I'm going to say the first one. You're going to say the first one, that he walked up to Chris Paul, took the ball, and said, let me show you how to do it, after Paul missed some free throws. Yeah. No, it was actually number two. He did challenge Tim Duncan to a fist fight. This was after he had already called two technical fouls on Duncan for laughing at him. (laughs) It's all bad. But this is not for you, because there's one more question, if you get this right. Oh, great. NFL referees went on strike right before the 2012 season, resulting in the league bringing in replacement refs who were not very good. In fact, one of those refs had done what before he got his chance at the NFL? A, he had his driver's license revoked because of his poor eyesight. B, he applied to be a ref in the English Football League because he didn't know they meant soccer. Or C, he had been fired from the Lingerie Football League for incompetence. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go with number one. You're going to go with number one, that he had his driver's license revoked, that he was so blind that they actually took away his license to drive, and yet he got a job refereeing in the NFL. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was actually number three. It was the Lingerie Football League. <laughs> in fact, there was an entire crew of referees from the Lingerie Football League who ended up in the NFL and were blamed for uh, some of the worst things that happened during that brief period of time. Uh, Bill, how did Padma Lakshmi do in our quiz? Dismally. Padma got, technically, <laughs> she got one out of three, but... Let's give her an extra point for bringing such spice to our show. Very You're well a winner, done. Padma. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Padma Lakshmi's new show is Taste the Nation on Hulu. It's wonderful, but warning, it will make you hungry for food that's hard to get right now. Padma Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining us. And wait, wait, don't tell me. An absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys, for having me on. I'm such a huge fan of the show. You give me great joy. I'm going to go back to uh, cooking my chicken. All right. Go do it. Bye-bye, Pablo. When we come back, figure skater Adam Rippa off the ice and comedian Sarah Cooper in her own voice. We'll be back in a minute with more of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. 
Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Ondaria Algae Body Oil. Designed to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent, a blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin, will transport you to sun-kissed summer days. Get ready for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Voting is crucial. And I don't give a damn how you look at it. Is this a man? It was we, the people. The land of the free and the home of the brave. Not we, the white male citizens. Misrepresentative Democracy. A new series about voting in America from NPR's Throughline. Episodes drop October 15th. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is... Wait, wait, don't tell me the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host, who just walked into the guest bathroom and claimed it for Spain, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. We're celebrating Columbus Day in the manner of its namesake. Namely, we're walking around pretending we discovered things that other people already knew about. For example, did you know that figure skater Adam Rippon is charming, funny, and opinionated? Of course you did. He was the star of the 2018 Winter Olympics. Two whole years later, he joined us to tell us how he was spending his time in lockdown doing Sean T's workouts. Um, so Am I supposed to know who Sean T is? <laughs> yes, yes. Who is Sean T? I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure if you saw an infomercial, it would all come rushing back to you um, like it was yesterday. Um, but like, I remember these infomercials, it was like, try the insanity workout. It was like a 90 day workout. And they took people, they took actual, just like whales from the ocean and they turned them into people. And I'm hoping to be one of those whales. Speaking of, uh, your athletics, you of course, uh, became very well known in 2018 as a skater. Did you start skating early? Like all the, all the figure skaters do? When you were a um, kid? I, I started when I was like 10 years old. So it was kind of later in life to be like an elite athlete, especially in a sport like figure skating where like it's such, um, there's so many hours you need. It's not just about like being in physical shape. It's it's like there's a, such a skill involved to just being on the ice for so many hours. So it was 
kind of late. And I think that's why I went to the Olympics pretty late too. I was 28 when I went. Yeah. That, that's like, that's like a grandfather at the Olympics, right? Oh yeah. It's like, it was like one step away from being like asking for a pension. Um, because my, <laughs> my teammates were, um, 17 and 18. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So did they think that you had wisdom? I, I told them I had wisdom because like, because, <laughs> you know, when, they, when these younger kids are coming up, like they were better than me. So like the only thing I had going for me was that maybe I wasn't a virgin. Like that was probably. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember once your competition ended uh, at, in, in Korea during the Olympics, you then became a commentator, right? You were talking about other skaters. Uh, so I was offered this position to be a commentator the day after I was done competing. Um, wow. But I didn't know I was offered the job. Um, they just assumed that I would accept it. So they announced it. And then once it was like announced um, that I was commentating, I had a few like calls and it was like from the Olympic Committee and from like U.S. Figure Skating, who was like our governing body of the figure skaters. And I, of course, was like, they're calling me to congratulate me. I'm like, that's uh, like for all the things I've done, like, of, um, of course, they're calling to congratulate me. But they were calling me to tell me that now that I was like I was a media personnel, I was um, I had 24 hours to leave the Olympic Village. <gasps> oh, no. Yes. So oh. I turned the job. That's down. so aggressive. It was oh, very you did. aggressive. Uh, yes, wow. I did. Because if I couldn't be in, the, I wanted to support my teammates. Like I went there as an athlete. Um, I wanted to like have live that full experience as an athlete. You know, you go there to represent your country. And I wanted to do that to my best. What What's funny is I could have sworn I saw you doing commentary, but of course I'm wrong. I guess I just saw you on TV talking a lot. I was trying to probably I, just run in my mouth like usual. <laughs> uh, Adam, we, we were researching you and looking, of course, for controversy in your Olympic career. And we found one. It turns out that you were accused at one point in your career of having a fake butt. I was. I mean, what an allegation. Wow. Um, <laughs> Why I, would anybody think that? So they thought I was wearing pads so that I would like, if I fell, like, you know, you're protected. But no, oh. I wasn't wearing pads. I just have a fat ass. <laughs> so the, the, Sean T can the accusation, that. though, was, was that you were using an illegal safety device, not that you were trying to make yourself look more bountiful than you actually were to impress the judges. I interpret it as like Kardashian situation. Yeah, that there were implants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I went full injection because I thought, you know, what would make me lighter is something <laughs> dark matter into my hips. So did you wow. have when, when you were skating? Did you have any? Did you have like a signature move? I understand, like something that oh yes, we're gonna go watch Adam do this. That's what he does. Um, I have one um, one element named after me, um, and it was it's called a, a Ripon Lutz, and basically it was a jump. But a I, what? A Ripon Lutz. A Ripon Lutz. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. what is a Ripon yeah. Lutz? Oh, well, a Ripon Lutz is when you um, do a jump, but instead of putting your arms like into your chest, you put them over your head. Oh. Right. Oh, that's wow. not to be confused with the pound stone Lutz, which is the same move with two diet sodas in your hands. <laughs> and you know, I had to make that clarification. <laughs> well, Adam Ripon, it is a pleasure to talk to you. We have invited you here to play a game we're calling Ripon. Try these ripoffs. That's right. Your name's Ripon. We're going to ask you about ripoffs, okay. namely people who steal other people's ideas or products. Answer two out of these three questions correctly. You'll win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone they might choose in their voicemail. So, Bill, who is Adam Rippon playing for? 
Sutro Bridge of San Francisco, California. Okay, here's your first question. A lot of companies like to rip off expensive brands with cheap imitations. There was once a brand of fake Air Jordan sneakers that you could tell apart from the real ones only by noting what subtle difference. A, the asterisk after the name Jordan. B, the leaping Jordan icon is not wearing any pants. Or C, the sneakers were made of balsa wood. I'm going to say the, the leaping Jordan wasn't wearing pants. You went right for that and you were right. Wow. Exactly right. Yeah. If you carefully examine it, you can see sort of the crease between the buttocks. He was not wearing pants. Very good. Very good, Adam. All right. Thank you. Next question. A lot of fake <laughs> products and brands originate in China. In fact, if you went to China, you could find fake versions of which of these? A, American movie stars, such as, quote, Angelina Wowee and George Cloney. <laughs> B, entire European cities like Paris, London, and Venice. Or C, fake African wildlife, which are all just dogs with things like rhino horns and elephant trunks attached with Velcro. Oh, wow. The, the terrible thing is I could see all of these things happening, but I'm going to go with fake African wildlife. I'm afraid it was actually fake cities. You uh, can go to China oh. and see complete replicas of the centers of Paris with the Eiffel Tower, Venice with canals to save really? you the trip. It's true. Yeah. It's very we strange. should all, all right. go. We should, let's go now. Let's just go <laughs> now. Yeah. All right. Now, you still have one more chance. If you get this right, you win everything, Adam. Here we go. Okay. Now, The Asylum is a very well-known studio that produces mockbusters. Those are the direct-to-video rip-offs of big Hollywood movies that used to be meant to confuse people who were browsing at video stores. Which of these is a real movie made by The Asylum? Was it A, Snakes on a Train, B, Transmorphers, or C, The 18-Year-Old Virgin? Is it Transmorphers? It is. In oh, fact, oh my God. all gonna, three of them die. were real. Those were all <laughs> rip-off mockumentaries made by the Asylum. Bill, how did Adam do in our quiz? Two out of three, and you won the crystal ball, Adam. Adam Rippon is a former Olympic figure skater. He's the host of Useless Celebrity History, which is streaming right now on Quibi. Adam Rippon, thank you so much for joining us. You're such a delight to talk to. What a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much and take care. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. 
personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. One of the wonderful things about the great times we're all living in is how we've gotten to meet some fantastic new talents. Just cherries on a cake of pure joy. If you stare at your phone half as much as I do, you've probably seen Sarah Cooper. She's a comedian and writer who hit it big by simply lip-syncing the president's speeches. The big question we had for her was, what's it like to rehearse these videos, having to watch the president over and over again? It really is awful. It's really (laughs) terrible. It's even worse for my husband because he has to listen to it and he has no use for it. I'm actually listening for a reason and he just gets to hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it's like being drilled into his brain. And, and you've said that you've, you've heard from fans of the president who like your videos? Yes. That's the weirdest thing about this. Um, I, I've only been called the C word twice. Oh, that's, 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 <laughs> that hardly counts in this day and age, really. I, I would think I would be called that every hour or something, but it really hasn't happened that much knock on wood, of course. Well, I was going to congratulate you on being sort of an overnight success, but it turns out that's not true. You've been doing a lot of really cool things for a while, but you started as like a a Googler. You were at Google doing Google things. Yeah, I was a user experience designer for Google Docs. Was that your background, computer engineering? That's what you were supposed to be doing with yourself? No, 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 not computer engineering, just digital design, graphic design, buttons. The buttons. buttons. You design the buttons, I, the little buttons. I make the that buttons. You, right, yes. you make the buttons. That's nice. Yes. And and how did you get from that to this? Well, I started trying stand-up before I joined Google, actually, and then I went broke because that's what happens when you try stand-up comedy. You're actually paying to perform, so I wasn't making any money. And my Google job was my fallback career from my failed entertainment <laughs> career. <laughs> so, um, but then I kept doing stand up and I kept writing while I was at Google and I wrote 10 tricks to appear smart meetings while I was at Google. And right. that was a viral blog post. And that's kind of what got me back out of Google was writing about my time at Google right. and what people were doing in meetings. If, yeah. if people can look it up, uh, the, the title again is 10 things you can do to look smart in meetings, which I assume that's came not from... even remotely the title. <laughs> <laughs> Nice try, And you just said it 20 seconds ago. Peter, you need to read that blog post. What is is the actual title, Sarah? It's 10 tricks to appear smart in meetings. 10 tricks to... (laughs) Ten things to do to seem brainy at gatherings. I got at it. Gatherings. And I'm assuming that you sat through a lot of meetings as you were coming up with these, right? Yeah, I sat through a lot of meetings. And two weeks after the uh, article came out, I was in a meeting with a VP 
And um, he was pacing around the room, which is one of the tricks, yeah. just to pace around the room, make it look like you're about to leave. Um, and then he asked the presenter to go back one slide. And those which are is another thing on the list, yes. He did both of them at the same time, and then he looked over at me and he winked. And I was like, oh, that's how you become a VP at Google. And you, and you, on the basis of that thing, which much like your current work went hugely viral and popular in the internet, you got a book contract and you wrote a hundred things you can do. Yeah. I gotta ask you, you're like, all right, you signed a book, you're gonna write ninety more things. Like, when did you start to panic about coming up with another one? Like, thirteen, fourteen? I actually, it was really easy. It wasn't oh. that hard. It was actually hard to like narrow it down. <laughs> and now would be a good time to plug my 2021 calendar, um, which is 365 tricks to appear smart in meetings. You get one every single day. So the best thing go. about that is there's going to be a 2021, everybody. Congrat- <laughs> we're going to do it. Congratulations. I had so no that, idea. That's, that's the thing that sucks is, man, meetings have changed. Yeah. Is there anything you can do to appear smart on Zoom meetings? Um... Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think the background is important. Like you guys have books. You got to have books back there to look smart. Oh, you know, oops. Look like you're you're reading. I'm, I'm in bed. You have laundry. <laughs> I'm in my closet. So I have all the clothes Ooh. that I own behind me. Sorry. I'm doing it. Peter's I'm, now on a beach. I'm on a beach. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. very nice. That's very nice. I'm going with the blank wall. I, I'm dying to know, though. So you're doing these videos. You're getting calls from like producers, executives, agents, and they're saying, we see you taking that idea and doing what with it? I want to do a show where it's a black woman who fails up. Okay? Because it's all white guys failing up. It's a black woman who fails yes. up. Yes. a black yes. woman who just messes up and she just, for some reason, keeps getting promoted. Science fiction. Brilliant. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. It's just like my second... My second book, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, that was also science fiction. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't be done. You just can't, it women can't do it without hurting men's feelings. Yeah. Well, Sarah Cooper, it is a pleasure to talk to you. But now it is time to play a game that this time we're calling Dubbing Trouble. We are all amazed by how perfectly your lip syncing matches Donald Trump's voice, but it made us think of the times when that hasn't worked out so well in dubbed movies. So we're going to ask you about misadventures in dubbing. If you get two right, you'll win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Sarah Cooper playing for? Ann Easton of Los Angeles, California. So your first question, uh, TV edits of popular movies are have famously creative solutions for replacing swear words. Which of these was the famous catchphrase spoken by Bruce Willis in the TV edit of Die Hard 2. Was it A, yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon, <laughs> B, yippee Kaye, Mothers and Truckers, or C, yippee Kaye, Mubita Wubita? I'm, g- I'm going to go Mothers and Truckers. Mothers and Truckers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was actually yeah. Mr. Falcon. And nobody Come knows on, why man. they did that. There's nobody in the movie with the name Falcon. It's just what they came up with. Wow. All right. Next question. Some of Marlon Brando's dialogue in The Godfather had to be dubbed over in post-production. And the question is, why? A, at this point in his career, Brando was addicted to helium, and many of his lines were delivered in a very high-pitched voice. B, he kept calling Al Pacino's character Al Pacino. <laughs> Or C, the stray cat that Brando was holding purred so loud during filming that it ruined several takes. Okay, well, you know, C seems the most likely. I'm definitely A, helium? Marlon Brando? No. Mm-mm. Plus, he's a method actor, so he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been doing helium playing that character. So I'm going to go with maybe, the cat. 
You're going to go with a cat. You're exactly right, Sarah. That's what happened. The, the cat that he's famously stroking in the movie was a stray cat on the set that he picked up and adopted. So we have one more chance, and if you get this right, you win. Sometimes even titles get dubbed. For example, the movie Airplane is known in Germany as which of these? Translated back from the German. A. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a pilot now. B. The unbelievable journey in a wacky airplane. Or C, you are under arrest if you call me, Shirley. Um, I'm just going to go with B. And you are right to do so, Sarah. We remember the Germans are very, <laughs> very careful people. They like to describe things exactly. So, yes, an unbelievable journey in a wacky airplane is an excellent description of that movie. <laughs> Bill, how did Sarah Cooper do on our quiz? Sarah Cooper's our champion. Good going, Yay. Sarah. Congratulations, Sarah. Sarah Cooper is a comedian and author. Her most recent book is How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. And you can follow her on Instagram. It's Sarah CPR. Sarah Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. And wait, wait, don't tell me. Thank you. That does it for our Columbus Day weekend show. We hope we didn't leave you riddled with disease. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions, Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Godica writes our limericks. Our intern is Darius Cook. Our web guru is Beth Novi. B.J. Liderman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dornboss, and Lillian King. In 1492, Peter Gwynn sailed the ocean blue. Technical direction is from Lorna White. Our business and ops manager is Colin Miller. Our production manager, that's Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillog. The executive producer of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is Mike Danforth. Thanks to everybody you heard on this week's show. That would be all our panelists, all our guests, and of course, Bill Curtis. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Peter Sagel. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll be back with a new show next week. This is NPR. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.